This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank everyone for joining us tonight. This is your host, Tim Link, and we've got a fun, fun show. Very interesting. It's going to be a unique one. You know, we're not talking about dogs and cats in this one. We're talking about wild animals in this one and a little bit of a, a novel coming up from uh, author Ken Wells. So we're going to talk to uh, Ken a little bit about his latest book, Swamp, and then we'll talk to him about his uh, writing styles because uh, Ken's been doing this magic for quite some time. So I want to pick his brain a little bit while we're here. So everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life. And that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for Dogs and Cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select Petco locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Joining us today is author and writer Ken Wells in his latest book. It's called Swamp. Ken, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be on. Oh, well, we're pleased to have you on. We're excited about it. And I was uh, doing a little teaser. You know, we we do a lot of uh, shows here on, on Pet Life Radio. and my show in particular, we talk to authors and writers and uh, about various types of books. And a lot of times it's, uh, you know, either books about the history and the uniqueness and scientific minds of animals. And then the others are more of uh, youth oriented. And then we have novelists that talk about how the dog comes into your life and then leaves and then comes back again and <laughs> so on and so forth. But this novel, Swamped, is a little bit unique and uh, interesting from the take of uh, from what we do here on the Animal Rights Show. So tell us a little bit about the book without giving all the good bits away. And uh, yeah, we'll take it from there. Well, you know, I grew up with one foot in, in the actual swamp down in southern Louisiana, my mom spoke Cajun French, and my dad was an expatriate from Arkansas who wandered from one swamp down to one that was bigger and better and decided to stay. Uh, so, you know, I grew up with five brothers, uh, fishing and, and swamp stomping, and we lived on a little farm. And we, you know, we had all manner of critters, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, I did, so this book takes place in, in this swamp, the Greater Chafalaya which at 1.4 million acres is, um, you know, a rival to the Florida Everglades, much lesser known. It's full of all kinds of interesting critters, especially alligators, swamp bears, uh, probably the Florida panther, uh, 350 species of birds. Anyway, it's, I decided I wanted to write a survival novel uh, because my grandfather and I once were out in that swamp and broke down around dark and happily, a boat came along to rescue us because at about that time, a literal tornado of mosquitoes came up out of the marsh. 
and were threatening to sort of take us away. <laughs> so <laughs> I kept thinking, what would it be like to really be stuck there with no food and, uh, you know, no water and no way to tell anyone that you've been lost? And so the setup is a um, precocious Cajun lad named Jack Landry, a high school senior, who learned swamp lore from his trapper Cajun grandfather. And, and he's been pretty much, a, you know, a swamp maven. And uh, his, his skills are so impressive, the knowledge so impressive that he gets a job on a, a weekend job touring as a tour guide for a high-end swamp tour company. And on Columbus Day weekend, a New York City philanthropist and his you know, high school New York senior daughter, uh, who is Harvard-bound, flying for the tour. And the plane goes down in the swamp, and the two kids are the only apparent survivor. And so young Jack has to figure a way to get them out of the swamp. Wow. And, and that's a, it, that leads to all kinds of, of turmoils and uh, interesting critters, as you say, uh, <laughs> that they run into. And the thing I liked about it is the fact that and, and is, you know, this is your own personal knowledge. I'm assuming you're pulling from, not necessarily playing crash, but uh, obviously uh, living there and experiencing all this. How does that tie into the book as far as how much uh, of real life experience is there compared to uh, the fiction to make it uh, all tie together? Well, yeah, except for the plane crash, I didn't have to really make any of it up. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know my, my, my father uh, was for a while the nuisance alligator hunter for Terrible Crash for Louisiana. We grew up, my dad actually was, was the Boy Scout leader on our little bio community, and we were out uh, having a five mile hike in the marsh one day and we spotted like a seven foot gator when it was still legal to hunt alligators. And my dad went home and got a shooting iron and, and the Boy Scout troop you know, captured a seven foot alligator. So I have a lot of alligator experience. <laughs> um, and so I, I had to put a, an alligator wrestling scene in this book because you know, there's it, 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 alligators are really interesting and, and they're not nearly as, as aggressive as say the Australian saltwater crocodile, but you know, in the wrong circumstances, you know, they can, they can hurt you. And, uh, you know, I was fishing one time um, when I was my early 20s before I left Louisiana uh, in this bayou. There had been a drag line in there that built up this kind of mound on the by side. And as I came around that little bend by that mound, I spooked about a six-foot gator, and he literally jumped over the top of my boat. Oh, you know, I had no idea that alligators could do that. You know, it was, it was like seeing a dragon, you know, flying through the air, and he made this humongous splash. And so, you know, I have great respect, have great respect for, for alligators. I also know an alligator secret. You know, they they have the, the biting power of a great white shark, but they have no power to open their jaws. So if you can grab them by the snout before they grab you, there's nothing they can do. A, a kid can hold like a 10-foot alligator's jaws shut. Yeah. Now, how you let it go is in <laughs> different circumstances. But anyway. <laughs> So all that lore, yeah, all that lore went into the book. Um, yeah, and how do you gather the uh, courage to go up to the mouth of an alligator? That would <laughs> well, there you go. That would be you know out of dire necessity. And of course, what happens in the book is that you know the Cajun lad manages to to sort of build a, a life raft of life jackets and then puts this young woman who's been knocked out and manages to swim to a place where, where there's high ground. And there's one problem. There's an eight-foot alligator occupying the high ground. And since there's no way for him to go back in, into the lake because he's exhausted, he realizes that he has to encounter the gator and get it to move because, you know, they, you know there's no, nothing else they can do. So this sets up, you know, something that you would probably see on small people. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, 
States. Uh, you mentioned early on, uh, rattle off some of these critters down there. And do they have a common name that, that other people would call them? Or are they unique to the uh, the swamps? Well, you know, the, the, the greater Chafalaya has a, a reasonably uh, interesting population of bears. And they are um, sort of biologically interesting because in one part of the swamp, they're actually separated from bears on the other side of the swamp. And I think they're in the process of trying to build a, a swamp overpass so that two types of bears can meet. Uh, there have been reported sightings of the Florida panther in the Great Atchafalaya. The number of snakes there, I mean, uh, one of my uh, jobs when I was a, a lad out on the bayous there, uh, we had a, a neighbor who was a sn- live snake collector. She caught snakes and sold them to zoos and biological houses and collectors and so for several summers my brothers and i and my father were, were live snake collectors and we have basically you know the canebrake rattlesnake we have the cottonmouth which is everywhere it used to be everywhere probably 12 varieties of water snake you know there's this red-bellied mud snake which you, you know it looks like some amazing artist painted it you know and there's a lot of folklore involving that snake it has a like a, a stinger on the end of its tail which really doesn't sting you but some of the old cadence believe that if that that snake stings in a, a live oak tree the tree will die you know so there's there was a lot of stuff growing up that they were telling us about that could make you leery about going into the greater chapel <laughs> so so as a young man growing up or young boy growing up in the swamps was it a matter of this was just the way it was? I mean, that's how you learned and that's what you did? Or was it a matter of keeping up with dad and, and your siblings, your your other brothers? And and God bless your mother, a house full of, uh, of oh, boys. <laughs> yeah, my mother was a saint. She really was a saint. And, you know, we could, uh, uh, no, no, you know, it's 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 what we did. You know, my, my dad was a, was a, and my grandfather were great. I called them outdoorsmen. They, they hunted and fished, but they had real reverence. For the land, you know, and, and they, they had a, a certain ethic. You know, we we never, you know, took more than we could eat or, or you know, give to other people to eat. Um, you know, we believed in conservation. Um, and so, you know, from the time I was three or four, I, I just can remember, you know, going out there and, and just loving being in the great outdoors. And, um, and I mean, by the way, you know, we had this little farm, five or six acres, and I can't tell you the number of critters we had. I mean, I raised a pig named Petunia and... Uh, you, you know, we had at one point we had 13 dogs, you know, and, and tw- 12 of them were rescue dogs because seriously, back then, this would have been, been in the early 60s, you know, townspeople would just drive out into the country and drop their dogs off. If they didn't yep. want them, you know, and you know what we would do? We, we could never stand seeing a, a you know, hungry or starving dog. So my dad would always say, we're not taking this one in. And then my mother would say, oh, yes, we are. And, and then we, we take in another dog, you know. So we had so you know, we, we ran out our names after a while, you know, so we had so many dogs. But we loved, we loved it. You know, we, we, you know, we loved being around animals and growing up in, in, in the woods and hunting and fishing and that kind of stuff. So it was always part of my DNA, really. Yeah, and I think that's a, the, you made some very uh, valid points there in the fact that, uh, you know, first of all, very unique. You know, I, I know each part of the country, just like different parts of the world, has their own unique animals. But uh, the the types of animals that are down in the bayou and, and the uh, the history and, the, the you know, the length, almost like prehistoric at, at times, I would say, some of the – because you don't see these type of animals everywhere. Yeah, you know, there's – you know, the alligator snapping turtle is an example of that. The big ones can grow to about 200 pounds, 
And, you know, if you stepped on one accidentally, you, you could literally cut your leg off. And then they look like they have these, these spiky shells and they really do look like a prehistoric creature. I mean, it's just, it's just astonishing. And another time we were in the boat going down the bayou in the Atchafalaya and, and felt a thump. And we looked behind us and there was like a six foot paddlefish, which is another prehistoric creature that just, we had, we had hit it. We didn't kill it or anything. It was just stunned. And it rolled up to the top of the water and shook its head at us and then went back down. But it was, it was like seeing a dinosaur. You go like, wow, where did that come from? You know, so it was interesting being out there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I remember I will have to tell you one of my quick stories. Uh, and this is here in here in Georgia, up in the northern parts of Georgia. Um, there was some uh, construction clearing of the land going on. They're going to build a home development as as they always do, and we had just torrential rains and mud everywhere around the area. And as I was leaving home one day, I saw something in the middle of the road, and I was in my car, so I pulled off and I got out. And looked, and it was a snapping turtle. Uh, at first, it was you know the shell was as big as a manhole cover. Right, <laughs> it was that big. So I, I, you know, I always tried to rescue the animals, take care of the animals. They didn't want to see anything happen to it. So I just you know quietly, I had an idea what the what the turtle was, but I I knew I had to be cautious. But I sort of got you know behind it to a degree and grabbed hold of the shell, and I was just going to gently move it over, probably a foot and a half, to get it off the uh, the road and he whipped around and tried to get me and i was so scared that i flung him like a frisbee toss <laughs> i checked on him later to make sure he was still okay but and he was but it boy you i mean those they're they're huge they're huge and oh, they yeah, are and scary they're, looking and uh they're very docile but if you're in their domain or they feel threatened uh, that's a different story they are primordial in, in their view toward life and you know it's either eat or be eaten you know and, and uh yeah, we had a lot of experience with them, and you don't want to get your finger anywhere near, you know, the mouth of a snapping turtle because then you won't have a finger. I mean, that's right. <laughs> You'd be minus one finger, absolutely. All right. Well, Ken, when people pick up a copy of the book Swamped, what's your goal? Once they're done and they thoroughly enjoyed it, of course, what do you hope they accomplish outside of that? Well, strangely enough, you know, it's it's kind of a Valentine to the ecosystem, even though these you know, this poor young couple of kids. You know, they, they have a you know an awful time, you know, just trying to stay alive and you know, weather that wants to kill them and you know, encountering all these critters, you know, in, in the worst possible situations. But then the more you, you think about it, you know, young Jack Landry, the you know, the, the male protagonist, as he recounts to Olivia Fitzgerald, the Harvard bound New York young woman, as he, you know, kind of recounts his life in the swamp and why he loves it so much. And despite everything that, you know, they go through, she begins to sort of see it through his his eyes. And realizes that, you know, they're probably in the worst possible circumstances. But in better light, she would come to understand that, you know, this really is one of America's magnificent ecosystems, and that the people who live in it and around it have a sort of preternatural attachment to it, perhaps deeper than, than they do in many places in America. You know, it's the ecosystem is almost inseparable from the culture there. I think if, you know, the, the secret subtext of the book, if, if I had one, would be that, I believe. That's very good. I, I love that. You know, when I was reading through the book, I was I was thinking about, you know, it's very entertaining. It's unique. I can visualize it happening. I can visualize the critters as you describe them. But I love the fact that, as you just mentioned, you know, you're it, it's an educational thing. You know, you learn about the animals and the ecosystem and how people, I think, uh, that aren't familiar with it, that part of the country they don't understand it or appreciate it necessarily and this is a great learning experience while having uh, having an entertaining read 
Yeah, you know, and again, I, you know, about the second thing I do when I get back to Louisiana is, you know, hop in my brother's boat and, you know, we're off to the Atchafalaya. And, you know, these days, you know, it's, my brother's an avid crappie fisherman. You know, there, there's a lot of crappie fishing, you know, in the bayous there. But, you know, I just go along and take my camera, you know, and then I jump off out on the levees and, you know, start photographing birds and, you know, try not to step on a cottonmouth or, or encounter <laughs> a, a big alligator. But, but it's just a magnificent place to be. And um, the bird life there is stupendous. I, I, you know, I can't tell you, you know, we, we have a little place in Maine where my wife and I go every summer and we have a beautiful little alpine lake. And once a year, you know, a great blue heron shows up and we're mm. just like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Look at that bird. Well, you know, I was with my brother about two months ago in the swamp and, I, you know, we, we, we probably motored maybe eight or 10 miles down this one curvy bayou. And I counted something like 20 great blue herons. Wow. Well, not another one. You know, it's like, you know, how could that be? No, it's really, it's really an astonishing ecosystem. And, uh, you know, the, the, the birds do very well there. Very, very, very nice. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, then we'll come back and talk a little bit more to uh, author and writer Ken Wells about the book Swamped. I also want to talk to Ken about his writing and writing styles and uh, his co-author. We want to give her a shout out too. Uh, so we'll come back right for this commercial break. Uh, you're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Sit, stay. We'll be right back after a short pause. Well, four to be exact. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Continue our conversation with uh, author and writer uh, Ken Wells. His latest book, Swamped. Uh, fantastic read. Very entertaining and uh, very educational. I found it very educational as well, so that's fantastic. Thank you. Now, Ken, you, uh, you had an opportunity with this book to write, uh, co-write uh, with your uh, lovely niece, Hillary Wells, who people may know as a writer, producer, a comedian, uh, in film industry. And I understand this is uh, her first book, first shot at, at the novel? Yep, yep. Well, you, you know, what happened is when I originally started this book, I started out with the idea of writing a book for boys. And that's because boys, especially like middle grade boys, middle school boys, you know, early high school boys don't read in nearly the numbers or with the intensity as do girls. And one of the explanations for that is that, you know, with kind of the feminization of literature, and, and I'm not saying that in a pejorative anyway, women are, you know, read a lot more books and therefore more books are produced for women and, and girls than boys. And so I thought, you know, the, well, I'm just going to write a, an adventure story and, and one that, you know, that boys sort of relate to. And so I do. And, you know, and, and I conjure up this character, Jack Landry, who is some of me, but certainly not me. And then this, you know, young woman from Manhattan who was Harvard bound. And, you know, I was so eager to kind of make Jack the, the hero of the book that in the early iterations, the first drafts, 
what I call the ugly versions of my book. Um, <laughs> Olivia was sort of a thinly cast character. You know, there just wasn't much to her because I, I was really sort of focusing on, you know, sort of making this kind of a, a boy hero that boys could relate to. And that was the feedback. People would say, well, you know, I like the plot. I like the swamp. I like your character. But that girl, you know, there's just nothing to her. And, and by the way, she's not even very likable, you know. So, um, so that was the feedback. And, you know, this is how writers are, you know. I stewed over that for a week or two or three. You know, what do they know? You know, so come on. But, but then, <laughs> and then, then I realized that that was that was right, you know. And so at the point where I decided that Olivia's character has to have a more fully formed, you know, take in the in the story, I kept thinking, well, you know, I'm a little removed from the teenager cohort. You know, like I'm, <laughs> I was a teenager in the Jurassic period. <laughs> But my niece, uh, Hillary, uh, she and I had actually collaborated before. I, I wrote a, a cultural and social history of gumbo called Gumbo Live Tales from the Rue Bayou. And when, when that came out, uh, Hillary was doing comedy in Hollywood, but also uh, working around the fringes of Netflix on programs. And she actually took the book and, and pitched it and, went and did a pilot, sort of pitching it as a, as a sort of Cajun food program. And we never got a, a take on that, but I remembered, you know, her, you know, her, her taking the initiative so just on, you know, on a whim i got in touch and said you know i think i need your help you know uh, i want you to read this if you're willing to and paying particular attention to the character olivia Fitzgerald and the you know the dynamic between the jack and olivia which other people had said well i don't think this is how kids talk today you know that, that was another <laughs> thing you know and i didn't know what she would say she, she might have said uncle ken have you lost your mind but no I said let me see and so um she read it and she had some good verbal feedback. And so what we did is we traded the manuscript back and forth several times you know, using track changes and ended up, you know, really getting together, I think, totally transforming Olivia's character and sort of totally transforming the dialogue and the relationship between the two kids. And as a result, I think it, it came out as a much better book. And it's, it's a book now that I think both boys and girls and, you know, adults as well, you know, can relate to. So that was how that process worked out. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Pull on those resources, uh, especially uh, especially relatives if they owe you one. That's the key. <laughs> there you go. You work cheap. You know that was good. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Anyway, you can get a freebie. We'll do it. So that's yeah. fantastic. So your background. I want to talk to you a little bit about the writing background in general, because you know we know the novels and uh, the great work there. But you had a very interesting uh, writing career and editing career. Uh, Twenty four years in uh, with the uh, Wall Street Journal, and then another six years with uh, Bloomberg Business Week. Tell us about those. We'll call them the early days, and. Uh, how does that contrast with what you're doing today, or maybe what can you pull from uh, being a you know a feature writer and editor uh, for those publications into some of the work you do with your novels? Yeah, well, you know, I don't think I would have ever been a novelist without the discipline I learned as a journalist. You know, and um, and you know, I started off from actually on my little hometown weekly paper, and eventually worked my way to the Wall Street Journal, and it really was at the Journal where they they had this love of feature writing and they had a sort of a, a method of teaching you and schooling you on the art of feature writing and and i took to it pretty quickly and it was astonishing for a while i was in the san francisco bureau and we covered uh, eight states including alaska and hawaii and the journal always had this uh, little feature story on the middle of the front page 
And I ended up writing a lot of those and later as an editor on page one, editing those. But it was a feature writer's paradise, you know, because the journal was fundamentally a business newspaper, but to sort of sweeten the pot for our our business-centric readers, we always gravitated to these really entertaining, you know, feature stories every day, five days a week on on the front page. And it was something, you know, one time I was in, in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, coming back actually at the airport covering an oil and gas development, a very serious business story. And I overhear these guys in the bar, which is where I was too. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> we, we call that reporting from the mahogany ridge. You know, um, <laughs> I'm in the bar and I overhear these guys talking about they're headed to a golf tournament, you know, and, and I said, well, where? And I'm not really a golfer. They said, well, we're going to Kodiak Island. And I said, well, isn't that where the bears are? And, oh yeah. Yeah. Kodiak what's this golf tournament about? This is like March, you know, where it's still cold. I said, well, it's one whole par 200 up the side of a bear infested mountain, you know? And uh, I said, okay. And so I called my editor and said, this is what these crazy people are doing. Should I go? And they said, yeah, get on a plane and go with them, you know, and go write about that. So that's the kind of stories I was doing for the journal. It was just, a, you know, as a feature writer, it didn't get any better than that. You know, it was just, it was a ton of fun. And, uh, and then, you know, you, you got to showcase your writing on the front page for, you know, probably one of the premier, you know, newspapers in all of America. So, but it, all that, you know, taught me, you know, the discipline of, you know, meeting deadlines and, you know, being very concise in your writing and um, sort of the fundamentals of how to really craft a, a good story. And out of that, because I had this very interesting sort of Louisiana background, it occurred to me that, you know, boy, I've been doing journalism all these years, but, you know, I, I ought to be able to write something a novel, something interesting about my uh, Louisiana upbringing. And I was sitting in the newsroom. I was on page one. And we had the page one staff was a little magazine staff within the paper. And I was sitting there one day looking around the newsroom and seeing all my esteemed colleagues. And this one had gone to Harvard and this one to Yale and this one to Princeton. And I realized that I was the, probably the only person in the entire paper who had ever skinned a possum, you know, so I'm, <laughs> you know, I, I, well, surely I can make something of this, <laughs> you know. And so I began to write these little little sort of vignettes, you know, these kind of thinly veiled, uh, you know, uh, encounters with real people and, and sort of writing them as short stories. And then one thing led to another. And, and I finally, after many years of trying, uh, got my first novel published in the year 2000. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's the thing I love about it, you know, in the fact that, as you mentioned, it's very, uh, when you're on those tight timelines and crunches, you know, it does teach you uh, discipline and structure and these type of things. And that's, you know, what you need when, when you're writing in, in any fashion. And then when you try to take that to writing in a novel and, and like your work, you know, I love your work and the fact that, you know, you, here you are, you know, a featured writer for, uh, you know, a, a daily publication. Now you're doing novels, but you've done nonfiction and you've done, you know, the sort of the cage and cookbook type thing, you know, a little bit of everything. And, and I just love the fact that you're, you're versatile enough to be able to, to move around from one area to another. And that can be very challenging. It is you know, quite challenging, but it's also you know, exhilarating in, in a way, you know, I mean, one, one of the things that journalism teaches you is to become a ruthless self-editor. You know, you have to recognize when, you know, your stories need fixing and you have to be the person who understands how to get it. The joke about editing, it, it begins with a scalpel, it ends with a chainsaw, you know, it's like... <laughs> Well, I love this fact that, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, the fact that you spend all this time, you know, as a uh, editor, feature writer and editor for these publications. And then when you come back to doing your novels, and in particular this one, Swamped, editors come back and said, yeah, it's really good. But, you know, you what about this girl? What about this? And then you just have to step back and say, well, what's wrong with that girl? 
then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, I'm an editor. I should be able to catch these things right away. Well, there you go. And that's why everybody needs an editor. Now, I will qualify to say that they need a good editor. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> but, but yeah, everybody needs an editor. And that's, and that's one of the things I learned in journalism that, you know, even I work with some of the best in the business. When I was on page one and our little staff, I, I think the journal won nine Pulitzers in seven years. And, and I was attached. I was editor on two of those. And at this very high level, you know, there's <clears throat> there's a lot of performance anxiety, but there's also just a lot of just that's sort of brought to the craft. And, and you learn how to do this stuff. I mean, you just you really do. And then I think I brought that into my my fiction writing as well, and especially the discipline to get to the end of a story, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you did a fantastic job of that. Ken, where can uh, people find out more about you, uh, follow all your wonderful activities, uh, pick up a copy of the book Swamped? Let's keep track of what's going on. Where can people find out about you? I have a website. It's com. And Swamped is available nationwide. You can get it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, bookshop.org. And if your local bookstore doesn't have it, tell them to order it and they'll get it for you. That's right. All right. Well, everybody would definitely pick up a copy of the book Swamped. It's fun. It's entertaining. It's, as you said, it's designed for uh, the young adult fiction, but it's definitely an an adult fiction book to me with a lot of uh, cool animals in there and even a love story. So we got to like that. All right. Well, Kim, well, thanks for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. Um, everybody go pick up a copy of the book Swamp. You're going to be thoroughly entertained. And then we'll get posted uh, Ken's uh, website. You can find out all of his other wonderful writing and keep track of that as well and see what's going on with him. Uh, so, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. We look forward to it and look forward to chatting with you again somewhere down the road. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. It's fun. Absolutely. A lot of fun. Well, we're uh, coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the uh, producers and sponsors for making this show possible. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, ideas, or people you want to hear from on the show, drop us a line. You can go to PetLifeRadio.com. We'll be glad to answer your questions, entertain your comments, and bring on the people you want to hear from most. And while you're there, check out all the other wonderful shows and hosts and entertainment. It's a cornucopia of fun and a whole lot of animal talk. So it's really good. So everybody go to PetLifeRadio.com. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. And who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.